bud. Thanks so much, Colin. Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. Oh, it is a great morning, hey? It is a brilliant morning. If I haven't met you, as Colin said, my name's Luke. I live just over the mountain in Fishhook, and it's a privilege to be with you today. If you're new to church, you've picked a really great Sunday to be here, by the way. We are, uh, in a, in, we're, we're doing a series called Eternal Beings in a Temporary World. Eternal Beings in a Temporary World. And today, we get to look at the enthralling subject of death. death. <laughs> I mean, like, like similar, but quite different also. Uh, today, we're looking at death, the subject of death. What happens when we die is the question we're grappling with today. What happens when we die? This is profoundly relevant to all of our lives for two particular reasons. The first one, George Bernard Shaw said it like this, the statistics of death are staggering. One out of every one people die. And the second one is because death is not a spectator sport, right? We will be there. It's coming for all of us at some point. What can, we, what can we know from the scriptures? What does the Bible speak to us? Freud, Sigmund Freud said to us of death, he said, and finally, there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found nor probably ever will. Now, we know that to be ludicrous because of what we know in Christ as Christ followers, but what can we know of death from the Bible? I put to you far too many Christ followers that I speak to today when it comes to thinking about death. Death has become this kind of, uh, and the things that await us after death become this kind of blurry sort of gray matter that's over there. And we know that there's something, but we're not exactly sure. And kind of, it lives in the realm of, I don't really know, but let's not think about it now. One day we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And so today I'm hoping to, uh, to grapple with the subject of death so as to put a little bit more clarity to what we all know and believe. Uh, I'm going to start by reading a very strange Bible verse. Are you ready for it? Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. Take, take a look at this one. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. <laughs> After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. What on earth is going on here? Why is it better to be at a funeral or the house of mourning than at a wedding or the house of feasting? Why is this true? And it's true because when we, are, when we come to a memorial, when we come to a funeral, we are confronted with the reality of our death, of someone's death and then our own mortality as well. Why is this important? Well, because you and I live in a moment in history where many of us would rather not think about this. We'd rather not talk about it. It's an uncomfortable topic. When I said to you today, we're talking about death, we all laughed, but I bet you some of us sat there and thought, oh, really? Do we have to talk about this? Oh. You know, we, we, we're, we're, death has become t- taboo today. It's a taboo. We distract ourselves from death. We do everything we can to not talk about the subject, to not look at what the Bible teaches or even think about this. We're obsessed today with positivity. Everything must be positive as long as I'm feeling uh, good vibes and I'm thinking happy thoughts, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place, right? And death, if we're honest, is a little bit of a buzzkill. It's a major downer, right? What this verse is saying is you need to from time to time be confronted with the reality of death. Because it's tempting to just push it out of our minds, pretend that it doesn't exist, and end up repressing death. Don spoke to us, uh, I think, two weeks ago about the casino vibe in life, eh? 
The casino vibe. Two things or uh, three things you never see in a casino. Exit signs, clocks, and windows, right? Why? Because, because they want you to forget about the outside world. They want you to lose track of time, and they want you to begin to think that this is the only world that there is, that there is. to become overwhelmed with the lights and the sounds of the present room you're in, and to completely forget while your money gets less and less and less about everything that is happening in the real world around you. Being at a funeral sobers us to the reality of our own mortality. Can I say to you in love, friends, every single one of you, you are going to die, and it's probably going to happen in your own lifetime, right? (laughs) And you need to be prepared for it, because when that moment comes, I think that's load shedding, when that moment comes, quite time, yes, (laughs) the lights have gone out, when that moment comes, it will be too late to prepare. D.A. Carson said this, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said this, Whatever the church does, it should prepare its members to face death and to meet God. So where does death come from? Where does death come from? Death is an intruder in the human story. Death is an intruder into the human story. The teaching of the Bible, as given to us from the early chapters of Genesis, speak about sin and death as not being there from the beginning. Sin and death not being there from the beginning. When humanity was created by God and set up for life, death was not a part of the program. When we rejected God, when we went kind of rogue independent from God, that was when death entered into the human story. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 tell the story like this. The story of, if you're new to the church, what we call the fall. The moment where we stepped away from God into independence from Him in the fall. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. That one, you can eat off that one. That one, eat off. Oh, eat of that's delicious. Feast, enjoy, go wild. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. And upon eating that fruit, death into the world. Through the fall, sin and death like an unwanted intruder, were welcomed in to our home, so to speak. Adam and Eve opened the door on our behalf. I know everything in your heart when you hear that, you say, oh, that's unfair, that's unfair. How could they do it on our behalf? The truth is, uh, if Adam and Eve did it, you and I would have done the same thing. Adam, Adam was the first one made by God. He was, he, he was made by God. When he opened his eyes, God literally had just breathed his breath into his being. Right? He, he opened his eyes. There was God hovering over him when he was born. Right? The fact that Adam, Adam got it wrong and Eve got it wrong is, is indicative of you and I would have done the same thing as well. But when that moment happened, like a virus entering our human genetic, if you will, sin and death entered the human experience and ultimately would kill everyone. Ever since then, huma- hum- humanity has been bound to the sin-death nexus. What is death? Woody Allen said, um, it's not that I'm afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> what is death? The answer is a little bit trickier than you would think if you're a Christian. St. Augustine said this, he said, I know exactly what time is until somebody asked me to explain it to them. Death is a little bit like that. For the Christ follower, the Bible defines death in two parts. There's physical death and there is spiritual death. Physical death 
is the separation of the, the material part of the, your being from the immaterial part of your being. The separation of your body from your soul or spirit, if you will. That is physical death, the separation of body from spirit or soul. Then there is spiritual death, which is the separation of humanity from God. Separation of humanity from God. In physical death, your body and your spirit are separated and your body decomposes. Ultimately, it returns to the ground from which it came. But notice, it is not the ceasing to exist of your whole being. Don't answer this out loud. Where do we go when we die? The moment your body ceases, the moment bodily life ceases, your heart stops beating, your brain stops functioning, what actually happens? Now, uh, here, here's, maybe this will come as a little bit of a surprise to some of us today. We don't automatically go to our ultimate and final state of resting with Christ. If we take a look at this uh, timeline up on the screen here, we enter into what theologians talk about as the intermediate state. I mean, please forgive my clip art attempt at trying to capture something. It comes out very linear to something that is far more kind of non-linear, I suppose. But this is a helpful way of trying to understand it. Take a look at you live here. Can you, everybody see the red mark? You live here. The, the, the line above is the age to come. Uh, the, the line below is the life you're living in now. The blue is the outpouring of the Spirit, the wake of what Christ has done. You and I are, are living as Christ followers in an enhanced experience of the Christian life because of Pentecost and because of the coming of Christ over there in the first advent. But Christ has not yet come. Now, for every human being in history when, so far who's lived, death has come, you see the arrow, before Christ's return. Okay, so notice that death has taken place before Jesus returns. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth have not yet been restored. Heaven, uh, we haven't yet been given our spiffy brand new resurrection bodies, which will only come when Christ returns. And so what happens when we die? What do we do in between the time from death and the second advent? Maybe closer to home for many of us, myself included, who've lost loved ones. What are they experiencing now before Christ returns? We can go to the next slide there. Well, there have been four main ideas throughout sort of history that have captured um, what happens in that space. The first two you needn't concern yourself with at all. The third one's getting a little bit warmer, but the fourth one is where I'd put all my money if you were to squeeze me and make me choose. So let's take a look at these four views. The first one, we're not gonna, not gonna spend a lot of time there, is the concept of limbo. Limbo is a strange kind of middle of nowhere, gray place where you kind of just wait around for a long time. That is not the teaching of the Bible, okay? I'm not even going to spend any more time there. Forget about limbo. Number two, purgatory. This is where the soul experiences a time of purification for all the sins that have been committed in this life. And then, having uh, spent time in pur uh, purgatory, having been purified, if you will, through what is essentially suffering, the spirit, now purified through suffering, is released to go to heaven. Now, the strength of this view, albeit very small strength, is it recognizes our need to be transformed before we can go and be with Christ in heaven. The weakness, which is a tremendous weakness, by the way, is that it undervalues the power of the cross to transform believers' lives. We do not believe in salvation through purification by suffering. 
We do not believe in salvation by purification through suffering. Why am I repeating it? Because I wonder if long before the potential of purgatory, there are not some Christ followers here today who are living in a kind of moralistic faith whereby you think, I've done such terrible things, therefore I must go through suffering, I must endure guilt and shame. I can't possibly be happy because of all the things that I have done in my life. And you're living in a kind of present purgatory, punishing yourself for what you've done. I want to say to you, that's not the teaching of Christ. That is not the gospel. Rather, as Christians, we believe through the blood of Christ and through the regenerative power of the gospel and the spirit of God in us, we are made alive that every sin, past, present, and future is dealt with finally and fully in the cross of Christ. And no amount of penance that you could put yourself through this side of heaven or in the next can make up for or touch anything compared to what the cross of Christ has already done for you. It's faith in Jesus, not faith in our suffering that saves us and transforms us to, to the readiness for heaven. Make sense? Okay, two more. Now we're starting to get a little bit warmer. Still got a long way to go, though, to the fourth view, but we're getting a little bit warmer on the third view. The third view is that of soul sleep. Soul sleep is a state of unconsciousness while we wait until Jesus returns, right? It's a little bit like when you were a kid and you went to sleep on a long trip, in the car, right? And you fell asleep, and then you woke up, and you were like, oh, I'm already here. A couple of weeks ago, I went for surgery to have my thumb reconstructed. And um, I remember lying there with, a, with a, a line in my arm, and the anesthetist saying to me, right, you're going to feel a little bit of something in your arm. It's going to feel like a pinch. Can you feel a little bit of pain in your arm? And I remember this, and then I remember nothing. I have no recollection of what happened for that hour and 15 minutes while I was out. And then I remember waking up and chatting to my surgeon. On the other side, I, I have no recollection of what happened in between there, but I woke up and I was healed. My thumb that was mangled was put back together and I was healed again. A little bit like that is generally the teaching of soul sleep. Now, this is a minority view, although I understand it's held by the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. The strength of this view is that it has a high view of the body and a high view of the relationship between the body and the spirit. Okay, the immaterial part and the material part, that's it. But, but the weaknesses are that the Bible speaks of an intermediate state of both consciousness as well as joyousness with Christ. Take a look with me, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writing to you and to me, to the church. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an upgrade. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. It's so hard to choose. Do I want to go on living in this life or do I want to go and be with Christ? Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. Or well, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is the fourth view, and, and, and in my opinion, the strongest view. It's the view of what I'm going to call paradise today. You'll see why in a second we call it paradise. This is your spirit, your, the immaterial part of your being is united with Christ, uh, but you have not yet received your resurrection body. 
nor has the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth taken place. There is, uh, their unity is not yet achieved, but it is an upgrade from this life in that you are with Christ, but yet it's not the complete upgrade in that you have not yet received your resurrection body. Make sense a little bit? Yes, there's mystery, and if you feel, ah, I struggle, it's okay, we all do. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus on the cross, next to him a thief, he speaks the famous words, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This, this kind of intermediate state before Christ returns, and he, he renews the, the heavens and the earth, and unites them together, and presents us with resurrection bodies, etc. In between, today you will be with me in paradise. Key phrase there? Be with me. Philippians 1, 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Okay, so admittedly, there is much mystery here. However, of what we can be certain is that the intermediate state is being with Christ. Uh, Paul says here uh, in 1, 23, for that is far better. Uh, of all the uncertainties that there are regarding the intermediate state, of all that we don't know, we have to allow the one certainty that really matters to trump them all. I realize that word trump has been uh, tarnished. However, the certainty is I get to be with Christ. And like Paul said, that is far better. All, all that we don't understand, all that we're not sure of, we get to trust Christ there. We get to live... Uh, in, it's, a, it's an upgraded experience of life, although not complete because we're still awaiting our resurrection bodies. Make sense so far? Let's put this in an illustration we can all track with. My good friends here, Ross and Luke, come up here, please. This is your moment, Ross, come on. Reluctant Ross. Can you help us out here, please? If you guys can stand back to back over here. Oh, hello. I nearly ended up on my back there. Okay, lock your elbows together. Okay, what we have over here is we have the material part of this being. Luke is our physical body, right? And Ross over here, our spiffy spirit. Okay, our, the, the immaterial part of our being. Now what happens is, in this view, upon death, there is a separation of the body and the spirit, right? So, so Luke over here dies and he falls to the floor, plummeting. <laughs> right where Luke remains in his spirit, right? Now, what, what is the most, uh, I'm not, Luke, sorry, uh, Ross remains in his spirit. Now, he goes to be with Christ. Where's Joyce? Joyce. Easy, easy pick, guys. Easy pick, okay? Sorry. Okay. He goes to be with, uh, with Christ, Joyce, um, today. Now, uh, there we go. There we go. You got more than you bargained for coming up here. There we go. Now, most important thing, they are together with Christ. In the paradise view, Ross is still experiencing time. He's still experiencing consciousness. He's still experiencing fellowship with Christ. Although it is very admittedly difficult to imagine what that is like without a physical body. Given the way we interact with people and with, with everyone is through our physical body. But nonetheless, it's true. Whilst all the whilst Luke is lying here, maybe he's been cremated. Maybe he's been buried. His body's breaking down into atoms and returns to the dust of the world in which he came from, and then Jesus returns. Joyce <laughs> appears again. 
I know, mystery, right? At which point Luke is resurrected and made new and raised to life and reunited with Ross back to back once again, never to be taken apart from one another, restored, unified, and in perfect fellowship with Christ. Yeah, well done, guys. Thank you so much, guys. Take a look at Paul describing it like this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. If you're scratching your head a little bit, so did the apostle Paul. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That body that was on the floor, Luke, will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. For the perishable body, perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. This is the work of Christ. No amount of purgatory could do that in your physical body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal parts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's a taunt at death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, so that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What if you are not in Christ? It must be said, the opposite is also true. If you did not want to be with Christ in life, it should not be surprising that you would not be with him in death. And I don't think that sounds preposterously unreasonable either. If you did not want to be with Christ, you will not be with Christ in death. Those who die outside of Christ would remain in what is called the shadowy place of the Shoal or Hades until Christ returns. Turning back to the Christian, what will the moment of dying be like? Now, I can only speculate. I've never been there. Many books have been written. To be honest, I'm a tremendous skeptic when it comes to these books of people that have gone there and gone and come back, and I am on the massive sort of skeptic side of that stuff. It's a great way to write a book and make a lot of money, and no one can kind of really argue with you on it, because anyway, so uh, yeah. Anyway, you make of those what you will. So I'm going to stray here from what we've been doing so far, looking at the Bible and, and building a kind of theology to, to really a bit of creative, taking a bit of creative license as we take the truths of the Scripture and speculate as to what the moment of death could be like. Okay, you, you, you see the distinction I'm trying to make here? We're straying a little bit because I've never been there, and it doesn't speak specifically about that. And so we're trying to kind of guess as to what that could be like, but not just guessing nowhere, guessing in light of the truth of the Scriptures and what they speak to us. So let's see what we can try and understand about what the moment of death will be like. I have a family member who's a devout atheist, and uh, he said to me that the thing that troubled his atheism the most was watching his aunt die. His aunt was a follower of Jesus, and she slipped into death with the most incredible, uh, visible, undeniable peace that he said profoundly unnerved his atheism because he had no way of explaining the peace with which he slipped into death. 
Dallas Willard, who I think was a Baptist pastor, who had a phenomenal gift of kind of imagining the abstract concepts of life and faith in light of profoundly understood theological truth. In his later years, Dallas is, Dallas is dead now, he's gone to be with the Lord, but in his later years, he developed pancreatic cancer. And in the later stages of that, he had a clear sense that he was dying. Upon reflection one day, he said this, I think that when I die, it might be a while before I realize it's happened. Follow here. He used to believe that life was in part the ceaseless flow of thoughts and ideas and desires and feelings and intuitions that make up consciousness. And those would continue through in life to the other side of death. He thought he would experience death somehow like a threshold, a doorway without a door, and crossing from one room into the next, whereby in that moment, you're aware of the room that you're leaving. You, you're able to see and experience the room you're leaving, but you're also aware of the room you're stepping on. It's as if the veil that separates this life from the next is, 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 is open, and you're, you're in both at the same time, is how Dallas explained what he thought this would be like. So while you're transitioning through, you experience uh, and you, you see both sides of the rooms, if you will. So when he died, his closest friend, Gary, I think co-wrote a book with him as well. Gary was with him, and Gary relayed the story of Dallas's passing. And he, this is what he said. He said, in the end, the circumstances of Dallas's passing were very difficult because of the cancer. But in the final moment that he actually died, he said this, Dallas got a far-off look in his eyes, and then, looking at no one in the room, spoke the words, thank you, thank you, before he slipped off into death. Now, Gary said this, I don't know if they were his last words in this life or his first words in the next. Now, before you think it's too far, have a look with me in the Bible again. Let's go, let's go to Acts chapter 7. We're going to look at the death of the first Christian who was killed for their faith after Jesus. This is the story of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is a, a, a martyr. Stephen was preaching the gospel, and, 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 the, and the culture that they couldn't handle it, and they killed him for his faith and his preaching. But take a look with me as we read these scriptures. Remember, we're stepping from theology to, to as best uh, thoughtful speculation as to what this could be like. But let's look at this in the scriptures. Verse 54. And now when the religious leaders heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. It's as if he was in the threshold and he could see through into the other side. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Now, it's possible that this is just an intense vision. Absolutely. You get to make up your mind. I, I put to you, I think there's more going on here than just an intense vision. I think somehow the, the veil separating life and death is open and he's able to see through while he's going through these things as well. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you're new to the Bible and to the church, that young man named Saul, here, yeah, yeah, I'll hold your things while you throw rocks and you kill the first ever Christian. That young man later comes to faith and becomes the apostle Paul. 
as his life is transformed and he goes from this side where he's taking the life of Stephen to that side where he's preaching and wrote more than half of the New Testament. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It seems the barrier between life and death in this moment is almost permeable. That Stephen is somehow in this moment able to see through to life on the other side. He sees Christ standing at the right hand of God in the heavens. It's as if, if you will, that we as Christ followers, this side of death, are already living in eternity, but are just unable to see it through the veil that is death. But there will come a time at the moment of our death when that veil will be opened and you will be able to see through. Now, what I'm fighting for today and a bit in this series is that somehow that understanding of I'm already living in that would come back with us now when you go to high school tomorrow, when you go to work tomorrow, that you would start to understand I'm already living in this. I'm already living in eternity. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is waiting for me and I'm on my way to him. And yes, there will come a moment when it will be clear, but now by faith, I'm reckoning that back to me now to live mindful of the fact that I am an eternal being living in a temporary world. You tracking with me? You've got to see yourself tomorrow behind your desk. You've got to look through that veil. Because what will happen is one day when you get there and, and, and you're standing on the threshold... That moment, it will be so clear just how part of that moment your, your, your business life is tomorrow, your school life is tomorrow, your, the decisions of your careers, where you live, how you live, what you're willing to sacrifice and endure to ready yourself for that. In that moment, it will, it will just be ceaseless. It will be endless. It will be, it will be connected. But now you've got to fight by faith to realize in the moment, I'm already living in this. I am, there is nothing that is going to get in the way of me heading to Jesus. I'm already living in eternity. When you're tempted to take a shortcut, cook the books, flirt with the secretary, whatever, whatever it is, you've got to remember, I'm living in that story now. This is not a casino. You're living in this. You are an olive tree. Do you remember the picture from three weeks ago? An olive tree. There are olive trees that are certified right now in Greece at being alive at the time of Christ. Over 2,000 years old is a picture of an olive tree I took in the Garden of Gethsemane a few years ago. That one's only 1,000 years old. So only 1,000 years old. You are an olive tree. You live in a world full of daisies though. Don't, don't fall for the mistake thinking you're a daisy. It's not just a brief moment. You are an eternal being. Live now in light of eternity. What decisions do you need to make today? Olive trees endure seasons of pruning, suffering and hardship. How can they do it? How do they endure? How do they not lose hope? How do they stay true to Christ? They know, they know they're living in this moment. Death is not the end. They can see through to Christ on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and they know where they are heading.
I'm talking about the intermediate state today. What happens when we die? We're making the case that we will go and be with Christ, that it will be an upgraded experience of life, yet still be ephemeral in some way, and that we do not have a physical body. What must we do now? Hey, if you have not yet responded to the invitation of Jesus, respond now. You still, while you still have chance, put your trust in Jesus. It's a little bit like ignoring a tsunami warning. Just going, ah, it's, uh, just because you tell me what to do, I'm not going to do it. No, no, no. It's foolish. Christ has made a way. Christ has made a way for you to be with him. John chapter 5 verse 24 says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. The only way we make it through there is through Christ. There's no purgatory. We don't want purgatory. We want Christ's regeneration, Christ's transformation, changing who we are, helping us to navigate through that moment to the other side. The gospel is the message of hope in this world, that this life and this world is not all that there is, that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and He invites us to be joined to him. Become a citizen of God's glorious kingdom. That's what being a disciple is all about. Is your life unified with Christ in life? Your life will be unified with Christ in death. And the second, the second one is this. I only have two. Allow death to give you a healthier perspective of life. Better to go to the house of mourning, to a funeral, than to the house of feasting. Paul said it like this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58, we read it earlier. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be an olive tree, hold the line. When you feel pressure in our culture to compromise, hold the line. Why? Because it's who you are. Not because if I don't, I'm going to get in trouble with Jesus. No, no, no. Because you are an olive tree. You are an eternal being. To, to do anything else, to compromise, to settle, to give into temptation is to make a choice that's incompatible with who you are in Christ. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't get to this moment. Feel the sense of connectedness and then have a sense of regret because you wasted your life chasing temporary daisy pleasures. Abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything done this side of heaven for Christ matters immensely that side as well. Now, can we land in a somber way and can I give you some homework? I know, hey? Homework, how audacious. This homework will be painful and it will even be depressing. I wept a whole afternoon and had a headache afterwards. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. So I'm asking you to go to a funeral, to your own funeral. Let me explain. Three ways to go to your own funeral. Number one, write a will if you have not yet written a will. 
Write a will if you have not written a will. Put it in a folder. Make sure someone you know knows where it is. I've given mine to a trusted friend. Write your will and hand it to a trusted friend. I am a pastor. I have the privilege of being many times in a place of pain with families who have lost a loved one. It is such a difference to them and their experience when we know what's going on and we can follow the will than when we don't and we're all making it up and we don't know where it is. You do your family left behind a tremendous kindness by writing a will. Write a will and share it with someone you know and you trust. Number one. Number two, this is the tough one. This is where I wept and wept and wept. Write letters to those who would be left behind, those closest to you, if you were suddenly uh, to die. Write letters to them. This place in this letter, it's not a place for apologies. Apologies, we're in Christ, we're in the gospel. We make apologies this side of heaven, not that side of heaven, right? So you make your apologies in person, but you, you, you write this letter and you tell them what's most important about life, what you're most grateful for in their, in their contribution to you. you. You tell them the most important things that you want to, and you write these letters and you put them somewhere with your will and you leave them there, just for the people closest to you. 13 years ago, I was preaching on death at a church in East London, and I asked the church to write these letters. Six weeks later, go, later a couple were leaving church on a motorbike, and on the way home, the man driving the motorbike had an aneurysm. They were both killed instantly in the bike accident. We got to then sit with the sons left behind who found the letters she had written in her Bible to them, which profoundly ministered to them in the wake of her passing. I've written my letters. I want to encourage you to do the same. Why? Because it's one way we go to the funeral. We force ourselves. I mean, this is going to serve the people left behind. Don't, make, don't, get, don't get me wrong, but this is really going to serve you in reminding you what's most important in life, what really does matter. It, it, it busts open the windows, lets the light in, and it stamps the clock on as you're forced to be confronted with your own death. Write letters to those left behind. And the final ones is a short and easy one. If there are any funeral directions as well that you can leave behind for those who would, kind of your family, in, in deciding what songs you would sing, is there a passage of scripture you would want sung? What does your memorial look like? You, you just help those left behind in such a profound way to navigate a very, very difficult moment. Got awkward in here quickly, hey? <laughs> Guys, we gotta do this. This is part of life. We're not those people who just put our heads naively in the ground and wait for it to happen. No, we're Christ followers. We have the hope of life with Christ, which means we can face death, knowing ultimately we will be with Jesus and it will be better, and so we can do that. And better to go to the house of mourning. How do we do that? You can't go to your own funeral, but you can write letters. You can prepare a will. And you can give instructions for what it would look like. And that experience will inform how you live differently the next day. I can't tell you how much I squeezed my wife and children after writing that letter. How much more seriously I took my next conversation with my mom and dad and siblings after writing those letters. Because they focused me on what was most important in this life. And what I don't want to get lost if something tragic was to happen. All right?
Can we pray together? And can we stand and invite the band to come up here? I want to lead us in a few prayers. Let's close our eyes. Let me ask you, are you with Christ in life? Are you with Christ in life? If not, and you want to be with Christ in life, here's how you, here's how you be with Christ in life. You pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came, that you are coming again. That you, Christ, gave me life, and you made a way for me to pass through death and to be with you on the other side, Lord Jesus. I realize I have, as Freud said, no answer to the great enemy of death. I cannot defeat my own sin. And so Christ, will you defeat my sin for me? Thank you that you died a death on the cross in order that I would be able to live through my death into eternal life with you. And so Jesus, I give you now my life. Make me a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Christ. I want to be your disciple as you teach me how to live eternal life now in this world, Christ. And then I, I want to pray specifically for perhaps you, you're afraid of dying. I, wonder, I, I know for some people this is a significant fear. It, it troubles you. It worries you. You're afraid of death. It's just mysterious and you don't know. There's so much uncertainty. I want to pray right now for you. The peace that comes from knowing the truth that you are with Christ in life and you will be with Christ in death and that will make all the difference. That though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's you. Would you just, don't raise your hand, just between you and Jesus, would you just acknowledge that before me and say, Christ, I've been, I've been so afraid. You know, Jesus, I've been so afraid of death and dying. So much so that it's robbing me in life, Christ, from living in fullness for your kingdom. Jesus, having seen today your provision for my death, receive your peace for me death is going to be with Christ which is far better and then for the church Christ would you break open the windows would you remind us of the of reality of real time that that, that we are eternal beings. Don't let us get suckered into this temporary world, Lord Jesus, thinking it's now or bust, Lord Jesus. Would you cause that moment where the veil between this world and the one to come is, is, is almost permeable? Would you cause that understanding to be with us now in life to inform how we love our husbands and our wives and our children and our parents, Lord Jesus, to how we do life in the communities in which we live, to how we conduct our businesses, how we make decisions in school, 
rules to, to how we date and who we love and who we marry, Lord Jesus. Would you cause the reality, the reality that we are eternal beings, uh, olive trees, Lord Jesus, not daisies, to cause the pleasures of this life to find their appropriate place and not be the loudest voice in our thinking. And would you cause the eternal wonders of God to be the things that we live for, Lord Jesus. I pray for high schoolers right now, Lord. So much life still ahead of them, Lord Jesus. So many decisions to make to navigate this moment. Christ, I pray your nearness to them it seemed to be that the, the biggest difference to Stephen in that moment was seeing you, Jesus, knowing you were with him, Jesus. I pray in life now that would be true for the youngsters in our midst, Lord Jesus. Life with you, in relationship with you, in light of eternity, Lord Jesus. Come and sear our consciences from the temporary Jesus today and rouse our hearts to eternity, we pray, Lord Jesus. Jesus together.